You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to your one-stop shop of independent conservative news and views here at the conservative conscience. It is Tuesday, May the 14th, and we got the truth, as always, packed with us, as well as my H&K 9mm is also packing on me. Things have been flaring up a little bit in uh, these parts of Maryland, so we always want to be safe. And things are flaring up in these parts of the border. Well, not my part of the border, but it's all of our border. As always, we're going to get to that. Um, And then I'm also bringing sneezes with me, so bear with me if I have to sneeze in middle. It's one of those days where those of you who have spring allergies could totally appreciate this, where... You could go for several days when you feel like you're three seconds before sneezing in perpetuity. You're always in that state of being. It's just so annoying. Um, still trying to find a good good cure for it. You know, Sudafed, you got some of these nasal sprays. It's really tough. Um, if you want to get good stuff, the problem is you need a prescription. And the problem is I need to go to, to, go to an allergist, but... The allergist won't prescribe anything over the phone, even though I've been there before. You have to go there every season. Literally does nothing but schmooze with me about how broken healthcare is, <laughs> which is fine. But then I have to pay, what, like 150 bucks for walking in there and doing nothing. And then, you know, the nasal sprays are a lot of money, two, $300 just for a small thing, which, you know, usually you'll need a couple of refills. So, that's the state of, the, of of American healthcare, and that's why uh, I continue to uh, to sniffle. But um, that's the story. I mean, Democrats this week have an entire agenda built on healthcare. They have a they have their narrative. They know what they want. We don't have a competing vision, and we built that vision over the years here on this show. But at a party level, at a movement level, we really don't have that. Congressman Chip Roy is someone who's really trying to build that narrative. There's very few people who are trying to give a vision of why healthcare is a dumpster fire and doesn't look like anything else in the market. And what's the cause of it? And how do we get it the closest to things that actually work in the market? And uh, I, you know, I was just thinking today, the story with my allergies, something so simple. You know, we're not t- talking about heart surgery here. We're talking about <clears throat> just uh, simple spring allergies. Just every step of the way, it's so much money. And again, that's because when you have venture socialism, not pure socialism, but venture socialism, government mandates and subsidies funded through a so-called private cartel. If you have an individual consumer that wants to be treated like an individual, 
you have no bargaining power. You're done. I mean, people either get it from work or they get it subsidized, Medicare, Medicaid, Obamacare. So, you know, those who actually want to be treated like an individual, you're screwed. I mean, I've, I've been at the pharmacy before where I was picking up $30 prescriptions. I'm not kidding. And the, and the pharmacist told me, or the whatever the tech, phar- pharmacist tech there said that, hey, you know, I wasn't sure whether to fill the prescription because I saw you didn't have insurance. So, you know, we weren't talking about, you know, it's one thing if you get a prescription for something that's, let's say, $1,000, $2,000, like, hey, well, this guy doesn't have insurance on record. I don't know. Is this a mistake? Uh, do I fill this for him? I'm talking about it was $30. Maybe it was a Z-Pack. I don't know what it was for the kids. One, one of the kids, an ear infection or something. Cheap medicine. Which would have been even cheaper if everyone would pay for it. But to me, it just told me how unbelievable, how unbelievably broken our system is where it was such a rarity at that pharmacy for someone to pay $30 out of, out of pocket. Well, as I always say, if we want a society that's not exposed to any cost of healthcare, then we're eventually going to all be exposed to all of it with interest. Anyway, that's just my little story there. I, you know, I didn't mean to get too much into healthcare, but Democrats are voting on a series of socialist healthcare bills, shoring up Obamacare, um, banning short-term plans, right? Those are one of the few... Um, off ramps to Obamacare. I haven't yet seen any good ones come out. I mean, they're they're just starting to take effect. So I'm still on my uh, health sharing ministry. Curious what some of you guys do that have small businesses, don't get insurance from work. Uh, but that's with healthcare, immigration, national security. You know, I want to share with you. I want I want to start off by sharing with you. A quote I haven't published yet, but I think it's really telling. So last week I did an interview with the special agent in charge of DA in El Paso, which, you know, he's also responsible for New Mexico, that whole El Paso border sector. And you had my article up on Drudge with his quotes. They were very happy with it. So I'm glad I established that relationship there. Um, about New Mexico getting slammed by the cartels. And I talked to him a little bit about national security, terrorism concerns. And I didn't think he'd give me anything on the record. And for the most part, he did refer me to his counterpart at Homeland Security Investigations, HSI, the investigative arm of ICE, and I actually will be talking to him tomorrow. So we'll see how that goes. But he said to me, are you kidding me? It's definitely a threat. There's definitely a problem with terrorists knowing that border patrol is tied down. The border checkpoints are gone. Um, and here's I'm, I'm just looking for it here because i transcribed our conversation but this is all this part is on the record I, you know so there's no problems with me giving this over and he said to me like this and, and by the way this is a guy kyle williamson 
he's now he's the head of DEA in El Paso, but he served for a long time in the Middle East. So he's very familiar, familiar with the terrorist angle of drugs as well. And he said, let's put it this way. The cartels are an international organization. So yes, it's a real threat. It's a prevalent threat. And they do have their associations with groups like Hezbollah, with Afghans, and with radical terrorist organizations. What that does is effectively move those borders right up to the United States. Those cartels link the borders. Just like they use their resources, their technology, their criminal enterprise to conduct criminal activities, they can use those resources to assist terrorists as well. When you look at a terrorist organization, obviously they capitalize on chaos. When your borders are in chaos, the same way the drug traffickers exploit that to move the drugs through while the border agents are moved away from the field, the terrorists have the same knowledge how to exploit that situation. To me, I thought it's a simple thought, but I thought it was a very profound one. The cartels link the border, the borders. What what it does is effectively move those borders right up to the United States. And and I, I thought today, man, I got to give this over on, on today's show because if you look at what's going on, if you look at all the ills of the world, we, we live in America, we want to be here, we want to build a civilization as an asylum, literally a refuge, an asylum from bad things going on in the world. You know, bad criminal organizations, terrorists, drugs, but not just criminal activity, poverty, contagious diseases. You look around the world and you think, look at all these bad neighborhoods and bad in different ways. Like I said, it could economically be bad, health-wise, politically, and then security and terrorism. All the, every angle of deleterious ills of a society you could imagine. And you think, okay, we're, we're on this island, this shining city on the hill. Boy, I'm sure glad we're, we're not down there in the valley. <laughs> sure glad we're not there. Oh, <laughs> boy. I'm hearing all that stuff going on there. Wow. It kind of reminds me of, um, you know, where I live outside of Baltimore. So, you know, Baltimore is a cesspool. I mean, it just, it, it's a punchline in and of itself. It has a higher, uh, higher homicide rate than, than El Salvador. At least, you know, mur- murders per 100,000 people. It's like 56 per 100,000 people. More than El, Sa- El Salvador. And what's funny is, so those of you who live in Maryland will appreciate the geography. So you got Baltimore City. You got just due north of that Baltimore County. Kind of hugs the city as well, but mainly north of it. And then a little bit northwest, next to Baltimore County, the next one over is Carroll. Carroll County. Very different than, you know, the I-95 corridor. It's as conservative as anywhere in Alabama, Texas, you name it. Like an 80-20 Republican voting county. And one of the things they've ensured there for years is that there's no major highway going up linking Baltimore to Carroll County. They're very adamant about that. So, you know, geographically, it takes the longest to get there from where I live as the bird flies, you know, relative to any other jurisdiction. 
because there's no major highway directly going there. And it's a good move on their part. I would do the same. I, I, I would vehemently advocate that it should, should never link it up if I lived there. Think about what we are broadly in America. When you look at all the bad stuff going on, the diseases, the criminal activity in Latin America and the gangs, Hezbollah, you got the Iranians, you got the Middle East. And here this DEA special agent in charge of El Paso is saying that what the caravans, what this whole open border migration has done, our invitation for anyone to come, these economic migrants, impoverished migrants in need, has allowed every bad person, government entity in the world to truncate the distance we've put between ourselves and everywhere else and put the problems right on our border and then through the border. Whatever it is, if you think about it, whatever criminal ill, the caravans serve as both a physical and political conduit, a sewer pipe, a conveyor belt to link us to all of the world's problems. That's why the cartels in Mexico, if you think about it, are the number one problem from a national security standpoint. Because that is the way you get anything that we're scared of halfway around the world to actually affect us directly. Aside from the fact that we'll have strategic interests, oil, shipping lanes elsewhere in the, in the world, but directly to the homeland, that's where it all starts. There's an interesting point. So I have an article coming out we're going to link to in show notes, it's almost like a part two to what I put out yesterday about New Mexico. I have some some of these other quotes from uh, Kyle Williamson. Not this quote, actually. It's not in this article. But about it's mainly about Cubans. So we're focused a lot on, well, there's Guatemalans, Hondurans, and to a lesser extent, people from El Salvador coming. That, that That's the big story of the numbers, the you know over 100,000 uh, apprehensions every month, it's mainly from those countries, although you know there's always a baseline that's coming from Mexico. Those four countries is what we focus on. But as we noted, they're really coming from everywhere, at least 50 countries. Okay? And that means Somalia, Yemen, um... That means, you know, Afghanistan, Iran. Okay? Those were all spelled out by Rui's, um, uh, what is the name? Hortel, I'm forgetting. It, it, it was the deputy patrol chief in the Rio Grande sector. So he spelled out a whole bunch of countries. So I'm not making this stuff up. Right? They all come in. Now, this article I did was on was on Cuba. 
Cuba is probably the number four country now. After the three Central American countries, Cuba and then probably Nicaragua and Haiti. But they're coming from Cuba. Okay, Cuba in large numbers. So there's there's two things to say about that. Number one, just from a you know public charge migration standpoint, this is yet another country. And it demonstrates to you that even after we empty out these three countries into America, there's no end to it. Because when you open up your door to all countries that are having problems, there's there's no limit to the number of people. I mean, it's it's in the billions who could eventually come. That's just the reality. It's in the billions. Okay, so that's one very important, um, very important le- lesson in this uh, in this um, equation. By the way, it was Raul Ortiz. The quote is: "These are from the Middle East, Southeast Asia, Yemen, Iraq, Pakistan, Iran, you name it." Okay, so anyway, but. Let, let, let's talk about Cuba. So just, to, again, to begin with, you look at the UN's data, GDP per capita, there are 88 nations in the world where the per capita GDP is lower than that of Guatemala, which stands at about 4,400 per capita. Okay? So the AP put out a pretty comprehensive report. It's pretty good on this Cuban migration. And it coincided right with my interview with Kyle Williamson. And it really, really struck me. Um, They note how, because to a large degree, they're coming to Juarez. And people don't realize that the Cubans have taken over the hotels in Juarez. And they really, they're the big people on the block there, more so than the Central Americans. And they're largely controlling it. And there's a reason for that. Most of the people from Central America, now you do have plenty of gangs coming in and plenty of problems. But they're they're just just very impoverished migrants. When you got Cubans coming over, there's a lot of problems from that country. But in a very specific way, it was actually pretty fortuitous. Um, Colonel Dan Steiner pointed this out to me when I sent him the AP article. If you look at the AP article, um, you'll see the cover picture there's this muscular man with one boy on his shoulder in a very dangerous way. He looks like a punk. He certainly doesn't look downtrodden. And I'm assuming they're Cubans because, I mean, I can't guarantee it. Sometimes they play games with the pictures. But let me just tell you, look, obviously we've had great people come to this country from Cuba. But as you well know, there's a very thuggish element there. There's a, the, the criminal aliens from there are just animals. And Cuba's not taking back their people. So what Kyle told me now is that there's a whole new dimension of criminality being brought to Juarez. That the cartels are allowing the Cuban criminal elements to run the prostitution rings, street-level drug trafficking, that was what what he told me. Which, as you all know, that means that they're coming over too. So you're you're taking this cesspool of cartel activity. You got La Linea, you got um, Jalisco, and you certainly have Sinaloa there, and you have a bunch of Mexican transnational gangs like the Barrio Aztecas and the Mexiculas, and then now you mix with that 
all of the other countries' problems, right? So what he told me was that um, you mix what he said. What we've never seen before in this region: other criminal elements coming from these other countries, and it's a whole new dimension. So whenever you see the caravans coming up, if you have bad leadership in a nation state or just bad organizations, criminal organizations in these nation states, wherever you see regular, let's just say impoverished, desperate migrants, you will see that as well. Because it's not just a physical land bridge, you know, you're coming in a caravan, but... And then you can ensconce yourself among them, but it's also political. They understand that in the West and in America, migration is sacred with multiculturalism and, oh, we have to be nice and bring them in. They know that. So anyone who wants to do us harm, that is the perfect conveyor belt to bring in the problems. I mean, picture, you know, picture you're living, you know, in an okay area, but it's not too far from a bad neighborhood, and you have bus lines coming in there. Well, you know what that's going to bring in. Same thing here. So now, the Mexican cartels are basically a conduit for all global criminal and, and yes, terrorist activity, and it brings it right at the border, except we don't really have a border anymore because anyone could just come over our checkpoints are down. Our border agents are um, nothing but a babysitter or a ring. That is the true national security problem. And when you look at everything blowing up in the Middle East, with Iran being cornered, very desperate, we're going to talk about that in a minute, you can imagine, if you want to screw us up, Now's your time because you're not you're not 15,000 miles away. You're right on our border. But that's the thing. The Cubans are now, now we have all of that Cuban element of crime. Very dangerous. But it's worse than just the thug organizations from Cuba. If you're Raul Castro, you're friends with the Venezuelans, you're friends with Tehran, you're friends with Moscow, you're friends, you're you're the leader of the Bolivarian Revolution. Everything you do is to counter America. It is inconceivable that now that they've created a cultural mixing in Juarez where you don't stick out anymore, so you could have Cubans there. It's inconceivable that they're not sending their agents there. As Dan Steiner told me, why would they not take advantage of something we seem not to have a handle on? Does anyone in D.C. really care about the potential ramifications of this? And and that's really where you get into the weaponization of migration. You think of everyone who wants to do us harm. We just, we just basically announced the world, hey, buddies, free shot. Come on in. But that's the thing. 
even the ones that don't ultimately get into America, they're all in Mexico at the border buttressing the cartel activities. I mean, if there was ever an area that needed to be cleared out, it's that buffer zone we need there. That's what we need. Before we do anything else in the world. And there are some things we do need to do in the world. I do believe we do need to counter Iran and the Persian Gulf. The threat of them shutting down oil and shipping lanes. But, But this is even before that. Because... Here's something, here's how I'm going to link up immigration, the border, and our general foreign policy, national security policy, military strategy with Iran. The, re- the, the reason why you need to shore up your, your homeland, your house, your defense, well, is A, because that's the most important thing. What's the point if you can't shore that up? But B, even where you're into offensive actions on your enemy's territory, you have to have you can't have your interests placed in a vulnerable um situation while you're trying to counter your enemy so it's our border but it's also stupid things we do overseas to place our soldiers not behind defensive lines in a strike package either land or sea or air but precariously flung out. Precariously flung out in all these countries. A, it's dangerous. (laughs) We shouldn't be doing it. B, there's no reason why we're in a lot of these places. And C, politically, it harms our ability to get tough when we need to get tough and combat the threats we need to combat Because then they have to walk on eggshells. I always said for years, why has a lot of our military leadership in the Pentagon recently been so bad on foreign policy? Because they have their assets flung out precariously in Qatar, which is an enemy. But they don't want to fight them because, oh, we got our people there. Why why do you have your people there? Oh, we we, we have our soldiers in in, uh, Syria and Iraq. Right? That's the issue. This is the problem. They're flung out precariously. So, you know, rather than our soldiers becoming an asset, they literally become a a liability. They're almost like held as hostages. This is a theory I thought a lot of people were saying, like, Israel didn't want us to pull out of Syria. But really, it was a lot more complicated than that. They didn't like some of the broader things the administration was doing with Iran they were concerned about at the time, which I think now we've gotten tougher on, obviously, with sanctions. But they actually, our soldiers were a problem for the Israelis there because they were almost like Iran's hostage. They had to watch out what they hit because, you know, you'd have collateral damage against American military. So that's the issue with that. We don't, we don't, we, we put all of our, you know, we have an open border. We put all of our assets in, you know, indefensible locations in the Middle East. And we're like, oh man, I'm, I'm, we're really scared of Iran. We can't, oh, we can't go full force on Iran. 
and really screw them over because we're we're scared. Well, we shouldn't be doing that other stuff. So then, yeah, then it makes doing the real hawkish stuff look dangerous. And that's why, you know, there's a lot of fighting, infighting now against Bolton. But, well, some of that's Bolton's fault because, you know, he's supported some of this past garbage. But, you know, we have at least 5,000 troops in Iraq, a few thousand in Syria. And, um, you know, clearly the military is telling Trump to stand down on Iran. It's clearly what's happening. There's no doubt about it. Because Trump, you know, gave all these warnings, but now he looks weak. So as you all know, Saudi Arabia, we now know, has attacked oil, uh, Saudi oil um, fields with drones. They've attacked two tankers. They call it sabotage. No, sabotage was a straight-up attack. The Iranians are bragging about it. And right now, you know, we look very weak. Everyone looks very weak. Israel hasn't responded to the war from, from Gaza, which was really Iran. Saudi Arabia so far hasn't responded. And for all of our issue with the strike package we sent there, I mean, we literally send the strike package to the Persian Gulf, like as in don't mess with the Persian Gulf, and the Iranians go and mess with the Persian Gulf and blow up Saudi tankers. And there's so far no response. We look very weak. I know Colonel Steiner, he called me today. He was really concerned about all this stuff because, you know, he feels that America is behind the restraining of both Israel and Saudi Arabia because we don't want Saudi Arabia to get involved and start shooting off their the war, the war toys we've given them. But one of the reasons why we're likely restraining them is in the following Yahoo News article. I want to read to you. So the title of this article is Pentagon Walks Tightrope Over Trump's Maximum Pressure on Iran. Okay? So right off the bat, that's kind of interesting. Walks a tightrope. The language I always use is walking walking on eggshells, but that's, you know, that's the thing. And to me, this was a very important, very telling article. So they talk about the Pentagon, which has sent an aircraft carrier and B-52 bombers to the Gulf, is hoping to diffuse the risk posed to U.S. troops in the Middle East by President Trump's maximum pressure strategy on Iran. They talk about how... um, uh, Where is this? Of course, they get a guy to go on the record... Not, I mean, not on the record, but off the record or on background to um, that they're, they're scared. The officials who spoke on a condition of anonymity suggested that the Pentagon was suffering the consequences of Trump's aggressive stance, notably his decision to put Iran's elite Revolutionary Guards and its prized Quds Force on the U.S. terror blacklist. Iran quickly dubbed the United States a state sponsor of terrorism and designated CENCOM and its forces a terrorist group. From the moment on, Americans became fair game, said one of the U.S. officials, who said he is taking Tehran's threats very seriously. Now, if you if you disagree with the president's strategy on Iran, then, then fine, you could articulate a different strategy. 
But it's the reason they're upset that bothers me because it's counterintuitive. We go and put our soldiers in hell for no reason, for no interest to America, other than serving as social workers for Islamic civil wars so we can bring in more migrants from there to further make us vulnerable in our homeland. And then when we actually need to get tough and need to use our military for a real purpose um, to really count our enemies and defend our interests, suddenly, oh, we can't do it. We can't be tough. We have to be weak. We have to be like the Europeans because they're going to hurt us. Well, yeah, I mean, if I'm stronger than you, but I stick my neck into your sword, well, it doesn't matter how, how strong I am. You put me in a vulnerable position. Even a weaker person could kill me. So they go on to say more than 5,000 U.S. troops are deployed in Iraq where they are helping in the fight to clear the remaining elements of the Islamic State. Think, think of the irony. <laughs> think of the irony of that. We have our soldiers in Iraq helping protect the Shiites and Iran from the Sunni insurgency. And we're, and we're like, oh my gosh, we can't get tough on Iran because it's going to uh, be a danger to our, it's going to put our soldiers at risk. And meanwhile, our soldiers are there only to help the Iranians. You can't make this stuff up. While the Revolutionary Guards officially have no presence in Iraq, they are still influential and were instrumental during the heat of the fight against uh, uh, ISIS. With the head of its foreign wing, uh, Major General Qasem Soleimani, coordinating fighting across various Iraqi battlefields. No, they, they, they are officially there. I don't know what they mean. They're not there. And then they talk about the guards are in Syria where the U.S. has 2,000 military personnel fighting alongside the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces. For months, this close proximity has worried the U.S. military, which fears for its soldiers on the ground as diplomatic tensions soar. It's one of the reasons cited by former Defense Secretary Jim Mattis when he publicly opposed Washington's withdrawal from the multilateral Iran nuclear deal. Think about it. Think about it. Soft power, defensive lines, Strike and maneuver, proper alliances like using the Saudis, proper diplomacy. That is a million times more effective counter uh, terror finance, homeland security, you know, clamping down on immigration. All of that directly speaks to what is threatening us, is much more effective. Yet we're sacrificing that and all these career people in the Pentagon who are a bunch of idiots that still evidently have control are sacrificing all that so we could use hard force in the worst way with no strategic vision, and then we can no longer do that because then we're, we're going to hurt our soldiers. Well, don't have your soldiers there. Only do this. This is what bothers me. So we literally bring through our migration, through our open borders policies, bring all the world to the cartels on our Mexican border. Then we flung, fling out our soldiers instead of putting our soldiers on our border, using the hard power on our border, soft power, maybe a little bit of strike maneuver, saber rattling in the Persian Gulf where we need it, our strategic interests. And boom, you're good. You got the offense behind defensive lines. And... You secure our vulnerabilities. Instead, we leave our border vulnerable, put our troops in Iraq and Syria, and then we can't counter Iran because, oh, they're going to get hurt. I mean, what the heck? 
This is just so dumb. This is so unbelievably dumb. How many Israeli soldiers are on the ground in Syria and Iraq? Well, inevitably, they have a few here and there when they do, you know, special operators when they do their airstrikes, I'm sure. But the answer is zero. And Israel lives right there and they don't feel compelled to do it. They don't provide food, electricity, and water for Raqqa like our soldiers are doing. You don't put your troops precariously between the shark and alligator teeth of competing sides of a civil war. You just don't do that. You just don't do that. So that's the problem there. And that's the thing. It's like often they're not behind defensive lines. They're flung out precariously on these patrols. So I I understand why they're worried. But that's not a reason why we shouldn't toughen our, our posture. It's a reason why we shouldn't have our soldiers involved in this garbage. I mean, what's next? Are they going to say, oh, we can't be tough on Iraq, on, on Iran, because they might come through the border or might fight us in, in America with all their operatives we've, we've allowed to get into America? They're not going to say that publicly, probably saying that privately. They know they have us around the neck already. But that's not because it's wrong to get tough on Iran. It's, it's, it's wrong that we allowed ourselves to become vulnerable. But that's the thing. This is why Trump needs to understand, as we said last week, there's no such thing as lukewarm hell and half measures. He's good. He's doing a lot of good things. He's saying a lot of good things on Iran. But the problem is, the same way on the border, it's when you when you put a red line out and then you don't follow up on it or you have elements of your administration doing things that countermand it so then you're weaker than than if if you would be just totally like obama and just be publicly weak cuz then you look like a paper tiger you know, you send a, a a strike package to to the middle east you don't do anything now look maybe there is something in the works i want to leave that as a tentative statement who knows but so far Everyone countering Iran, you know, America, Israel, Saudi Arabia look pretty weak. And again, at our border. Why is Trump not putting the military on our border to plug these holes in the frontiers? Don't deal with the migrants. That's a separate issue. That he should be shutting off. Completely. Totally shutting off. So you don't need to, I don't need you to deal with that. But counter the cartels. Counter any terrorist threats. I know there are bad guys getting through that they know are getting through and they cannot get to them. That's what you need the military for. Put the military on our border. That way you're securing our vulnerability. 
That way, and then you don't have them in Syria and Iraq. And what you do have them in is, you know, more air, Navy. Or again, you have that you have to have them be fine behind forward operating bases with defensive lines backed by not just air power, but um, land-based artillery. You just have them precariously flung out on patrols in these, you know, mixed civil wars with no clear lines. They're vulnerable as anything. But they shouldn't be there. But anyway, you're finding a similar problem with this half-baked, like getting very tough, but then doing nothing because there's idiots in the administration. You're having this on immigration too, and it all it all links back together. This was a um, Washington uh, Post article. A lot of you might have seen this. Before Trump's purge at DHS, top officials challenged plan for mass family arrests. In the weeks before they were ousted last month, Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen and top immigration enforcement official Ronald, Ronald Vitello challenged the, a secret White House plan to arrest thousands of parents and children in a blitz operation against migrants in 10 major U.S. cities. By the way, notice they concoct this, concocted this plan right around when I called for it. Um, and then Morgan and Homan, when I quoted them in my article, they were echoing that. So I know, I know the White House got it from me. The whole because I was the one who put out the data of you know 1.1 million and half of that being from Central America families with final deportation orders that have not been deported. And my point was, look, if you're unwilling to do stuff at the front end to shut it off, at least at the back end, let them see massive deportations of those that at least have final deportation orders, that will have an effect. Don't just focus on criminal aliens with criminal records as important as that is. You need this as a tool um, to stop the current flow. So, um, according to seven current and former Department of Homeland Security officials, the administration wanted to target the crush of families that had crossed the U.S.-Mexico border after the president's failed zero-tolerance prosecution push in early 2018. The ultimate purpose, the official said, was a show of force to send the message that the United States was going to get tough by swiftly moving to detain and deport recent Im- immigrants, including families with children. The sprawling operation included an effort to fast-track immigration court cases, um, allowing the government to obtain deporta- deportation orders against those who did not show for their hearings. Officials said 90% of those targeted were found deportable in their absence. So, um, but Vitello and Nielsen halted it, concerned about a lack of preparation by ICE, the risk of public outrage, and worries that it would divert resources from the border. <laughs> divert resources. Um Senior Trump advisor Stephen Miller and ICE Deputy Director Matthew Albans were especially supportive of the plan, officials said, eager to execute dramatic, highly visible mass arrests, and they argued that they argued would help deter the soaring influx of families. The arrests were planned for New York, Chicago, LA, and the largest U.S. destinations for Central American migrants. ICRO had an initial target list of 2,500 adults and children. But the plan, which remains under consideration, was viewed as a first step toward arresting as many as 10,000. And the the vast majority were people who crossed within 18 months. 
DHS officials said the objections Vitello Nielsen raised regarding the targeted at-large arrests were mostly operational and logistical and not as a result of ethical concerns about arresting families. I don't know what they're saying because a minute ago the article just said they were concerned about public outrage. But anyway, um, I mean, this is the problem. Every step of the way, you have jerks in this administration. So they got rid of those two, but you know who knows how many you have. Whether it's the Pentagon, whether it's DHS, and then they quote all these people off the record. How does the Washington Post get eight people to talk to them? I can never get anyone to talk to me off the record or, or on background. This is really on background to give quotes on background. That's how many snakes you have. So um that's that's where we are. So um look, I think I think we're getting through, which is a good thing, but it's a problem when they don't follow through with it. So anyway, that's with this. But I keep getting back to the juxtaposition of our foreign policy, national security, immigration, the border. I mean, that's what it is. It's all about shutting off visas from the Middle East, cleaning up our legal immigration system, cleaning up our border, complete shutoff, putting the military on the border, making the right alliances, going like hell against terror finance. I mean, you go after... You choke off Iran. You choke off Qatar. Get your bases out of there because you don't need them there anyway. Get your soldiers out of these other stupid places. And everything you do from here on out, all of the resources militarily that you're expending and the money you're expending on occupations and, and social work and nation building should all be ready strike package, strike force packages to strike and maneuver, do what you need, create a uh, perimeter within the Persian Gulf, and you say anything within that perimeter that comes in there by Iran will be shot shot at, will be fired upon. And that's it. That is it. It's that simple. And in his heart, Trump seems to understand this. He wants to get out of the stupid things. He wants to get tougher where we should get tougher. But again, there's no points for half measures. You got to go full force. Because then you get the disadvantages of everything politically. If you're going to be tough, you got to go all the way. I understand it's tough for him because you, know, you have all this sabotage. But he's got to get rid of these people. So that's what I wanted to bring in for today. Now, there's one other couple couple good thing. Well, I wanted to get to some good news, but but one other point before I lose this train of thought. You might have seen this FBI raids Alabama terror camp connected to the son of a radical imam. Um. This originally came from Sinclair Broadcasting, the local maybe CBS affiliate in Alabama. But I'm going to read here from CarriePickett.com. Carrie Pickett is uh, she's a good um, 
Daily Caller reporter. She worked for the Washington Times. The FBI uncovered a homegrown terror training camp in Alabama Friday owned by a group of terrorists headed up by the son of Siraj Ibn Wahaj, an imam who once caused the stir at the 2012 Democrat National Convention in Charlotte. This is the second domestic terror training camp in two years that the younger Wahaj has been connected to. According to Sinclair Broadcasting, the FBI field office in Mobile described the rundown plot of land in Macron County as a makeshift military-style obstacle course on property owned by a small group of jihadists and Wahaj. A small group of jihadists. See, I guess they're not, they haven't published names. I, I, I have to get a hold of the FBI report, but I'd like to know where they're from. This is the type of garbage we're bringing in now. We had this in New Mexico, now in Alabama, Random places. Remember how we spoke about this fundamental transformation? How you openly have a, a number of these African or, you know, Middle Eastern or whatever, or cartel related to Central Americans, uh, Mexicans in, in rural areas, messing up rural areas with crime and problems. But now you even have terror training camps. You know, you again, thinking about that shining city on the hill. We like to think of our rural areas as like, you know, away from even American problems and certainly away from the world's global uh, security problems. It's so sad that we brought this problem into our country with bringing in at least 2 million from these Islamic countries since 9-11. As immigrants, much less non-immigrants, we've got the border problems. Again, we self-immolate by bringing the border of other problems to our border and in our border. We make our homeland vulnerable. Then we send our troops off rather than defending our homeland to defend other people's homeland. And then we're too scared to do the proper strike and maneuver and even just sanctions and soft power because of the backlash against our troops that should never be there when they're there to help our enemies. Everything is so backwards, but there's a lot of this going on. How many, you know, the FBI says they have 800 domestic terror investigations. Now, I know that includes, like, it could be white, white supremacists, white supremacists, that could be eco-terrorists, that could be a lot of things. But I'm saying, how many people do you think, let's just talk about the Iranian government, the mullahs. How many people do you think they have already in our country? Already in our country, whether it was from the border or straight up, we let them in like a bunch of idiots through our visa system that are already trained in cloak and dagger tactics and could be turned on at a moment's notice. This is the lost two decades post 9-11 where we didn't focus on eradicating the terror networks in our own country, the terror finance. Or not enough. Shutting down immigration rather than doubling it from the Middle East. Using our military for our border. And then you can serve all those resources. Could you imagine all the resources and lives and money lost in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and all these other places when we could have had such a robust deterrent preserved without being depleted to counter Iran and Hezbollah, and Russia, China, North Korea, for that matter. 
That's the thing. When we open up our doors to the world and say, oh, there's nothing we can do with the, the laws. There's a loophole in the law that just says anyone who wants could say, uh, oh, they want to come here and we have to let them in and there's nothing we can do. Again, all those problems, certainly the health concerns, the public charge, you're bringing in, but you're bringing in all of the criminal networks and that includes at a statecraft level because you know, remember, like Guatemala, we don't have a problem with the government. It's it's a lack of government. I mean, the government's a good Jimmy Jimmy Morales is a good guy. Um, he just has no control over it. It's it's the criminal organizations there. Cuba, it's all statecraft. So if you got a lot of Cubans coming here, <laughs> I mean, you essentially may as well just invite Iranians too, which they're coming as well as we've proved that. So this is your latest lesson in our dyslexic foreign policy and, and homeland security policy. So in the closing minutes of the show, I just want to share with you a good story. Some of you might have seen it, um, but ICE agents are now in the swing of this Operation Secure Streets to target those with DUI arrests. Remember how we talked about how dangerous DUIs are in and of itself, just for anyone. How the fact that you have people that shouldn't be here to begin with, that there's a pervasive culture, particularly among, you know, Mexican, Central American illegal aliens to drive drunk. How many people are killed by them? And then how many of those type of people who live on the wild side and are bad people that drive drunk, they go on to commit many other crimes, but they were initially picked up on drunk driving, let's say before someone was killed from it. And all the mayhem could have been prevented. So really, you know, again, ideally the first time, if we had a sane country, every local law enforcement would immediately turn over anyone arrested for a driving offense who's an illegal alien. They should immediately ask for citizenship, find out, done, you're out of here. A lot of them aren't doing it. Certainly the sanctuaries, but even others just aren't trained in it and they're scared to ask and this and that and they don't turn them over. So... One of the good things that ICE – see, the story we spoke about from the Washington Post was using interior enforcement as a back-end means of disincentivizing the current flow from Central America. That, unfortunately, they're not doing yet, and they need to do. But at least for now, in terms of interior enforcement, cleaning up the longstanding garbage that we have in this country for a while from the criminal aliens and particularly targeting drunk driving, which is very important – is really good. So this is from um, Boston Herald story. ICE agents using fingerprints from drunken driving arrests have swept up 141 illegal immigrants in New England the past few weeks, including a Kenyan national living in Lowell with pending rape, robbery, and strangulation charges. So you see, a lot of those guys are really bad. Others netted in Operation Secure Streets included a Honduran living in South Boston accused of selling cocaine and a Ukrainian caught in Cambridge with two previous drunken driving Con- convictions, immigration officials said. All 141, 104 nabbed in Massachusetts alone are now being deported. A total of 1,191 illegal immigrants were caught in- nationwide in the OUI sweep, meaning Massachusetts accounts for one in 12 of the arrests. These people were being overlooked, said Todd Michael Lyons, the deputy field director 
for ICE Immigration and Customs Enforcement in Boston. By the way, I, I know the guy. He's a good guy. Um, driving under the influence is a dangerous threat regardless of what country the offender is from. It's even more disturbing crime when it's committed by someone who has no legal right to be in the in the country. See, this guy's good. He's not PC. He's a good guy. So um, this is something we're going to be looking at covering, you know. And I want I want to give them positive press for it because um, this is something that is good. It's something that is positive. But as I always say, could you imagine how much crime we don't even realize is caused? By these dudes. We just don't realize it. We become desensitized to it. You know, an interesting statistic, we've talked about this for a while, but I'm glad that um, the Washington Examiner is reporting on this. Because this is vitally important. But they report that one-third of all federal sentences were immigration-related. We've noted this many times. That tying back into jailbreak, these people that claim to be, oh, there's too many people serving too much time in federal prison. We're like, are you kidding me? Federal prison population has been plummeting, like 15%, the last number of years. But as we noted, immigration is the 800-pound gorilla in the room. This is from Paul Bedard. Immigration crime virtually all involving illegal male Hispanic immigrants was the top offense in federal courts last year, according to the U.S. Sentencing Commission. In its just-released annual report, the commission said that immigration crimes accounted for 34.4% of all sentencing cases, up from 30% last year. Overall, the court saw 69,425 cases, most involved Hispanics and illegal immigrants. In fiscal year 2018, 54.3% of all offenders were Hispanic. Think about this. We're having a national debate over criminal justice reform. All this legislation. Oh, and like, dude, it's all the federal system is all about immigration. So if you just deport all these people before they could commit too many crimes, that is the way to, most importantly, solve the public safety issue, solve immigration. And then if you're worried about, you know, too much money being spent and too many people in the federal uh, facilities, well, deal with immigration. But many of these same jailbreak groups are open border groups. (laughs) That's the irony of it. Non-U.S. citizens accounted for 42.7% of all federal offenders. Okay? That's the story. So, um, you know, obviously a lot of them are immigration cases, but again, as I noted, as I noted, Often, if they're being prosecuted, because we're barely prosecuting people at the border, they're usually interior. They're usually because there's other bad things about them. 
So the offense might be immigration because a lot of people say, well, Daniel, that's redundant. You know, don't tell me they commit all this crime because it's immigration. So, yeah, of course, illegal immigrants will have all the immigration violations. But no, we hit them up on immigration violations because they're usually picked up on drugs, firearms, fraud, and then often a lot worse. So um, just figure you should know that. And, and one more thing, as I'm recording, uh, um, one of our listeners, Vicky, sends us a very sad story. Remember we talked about this um, dude, Emmanuel Aranda, the guy um, in, uh, in Minneapolis who threw a five-year-old boy off a third-floor balcony in the Mall of America you know, a couple of weeks ago. I mean, you would think a guy like that should be life in prison without parole, right? Now, I don't think the kid died in the end. Um, suffered serious injuries. But this guy issued a plea bargain. He agreed to serve 19 years in prison with prosecutors dropping its attempt for an aggravated sentence in return. So that means, I mean, 19 years with the good time credits, who knows when I'll get out? Could be less than 15 years. I mean, something this bad. That's why this notion that we're locking up too many people and locking up too many people for too long. I mean, it just, this is like the worst of the worst. And even this guy, you know, isn't getting that long. It's just such a big lie. Anyway, we're going to stand for truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God here. Thanks for all your insights and questions, comments. You could always email me, dhorowitz at blazemedia.com. Let me know what you want discussed, what you want addressed. Or, you know, again, you know, if you have more of these stories, I never, there's never a problem of too much information. I might not have time to delve into it now, but feel free to, to send me information that, that you feel is important. Let's do this together. Let's create a new movement. Till tomorrow, God bless y'all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conscience.